And I'd like to share with you a bit about my own journey into this practice and my life and how I'm thinking about the practice and integrating it into my life and my path at the moment. And I'll start by saying that I'm remembering uh, six years ago, about six years ago, when I was very much in Mitzrayim, in that place of contractedness, of struggle, of difficulty, of depression. So much so that at the time when I was in college, I went into uh, the office of the chaplain, with whom I was very close, Reverend Chaz Howard. And um, he's wonderful. I saw him again uh, about six months ago, uh, right after I got my ear pierced. And I walked into his office and I sat down and he said, nice earring. Tell me, what have you learned of God? <laughs> and I thought, I love it that he holds you know, both of those together. And I said, I think they actually have to do with each other. And that's a, maybe a different talk for another time. Um, and uh, at the time I was uh, in such a place of tension uh, and distress uh, or anxiety depression, that I, I was literally in tears saying, I just want to be happy. And then Chaz said, can we pray together? And I said, okay. And, um, and then he opened his mouth and out came the words, Kel Rachum Vachanu in Hebrew. And I was kind of shocked out of my state of being at the time. I'm very grateful for his open heart and presence. And uh, between then and now have been uh, six years of avoda, of uh, a lot of practice, of some really good therapy, of some good tefillah and good friends and a lot of life, and finding myself in a very different place for which I'm so grateful. So I found myself today sitting uh, in Zamora up the street, eating some delicious vegan food. And I was remembering my French Lema, who I, uh, about a year ago, used to sit with and, and have lunch there. Uh, and as, a, as that thought came up, so came with it, some yearning, some longing, sense of, I miss you. You know that thought, that feeling? And... Um, and then I thought about it, and, uh, you know, shlema means whole. So that yearning or missing for whole, for being whole. Uh, and usually with that sense of yearning comes uh, a certain painful experience of not being whole, that thought. It's a thought that I'm not whole. There's a thought about what could be, and then this sense of a gap between where I am right now and where I would like to be. And caught in that image, we kind of feel the, uh, the disappointment or the uh, tension of being here and not being there. And since I've learned that there is really here with a T, I tuned in to what was here, meaning I tuned into the yearning. So I didn't get rid of the yearning. I don't want to get rid of the yearning. 
I don't want to get rid of any part of my experience, any part of me. That would mean getting rid of part of life and its energy. But instead of being stuck in that thought and that pain, I actually came into the yearning as an experience of, in and of itself. What is the experience of yearning? How is it alive right now in me, in my body? So there's a, there's a kind of energy in that, an energy which is actually right here. There is even a sweetness of the thought, even if it's a thought of you know, desire or fantasy, but the, the texture or the experience of the thought, it, thought itself uh, has a, a life to it. So uh, then I was no longer bound or uh, in the pain of the yearning, but actually in the aliveness of the yearning. And in Sefer Bereshit, which we start this week, uh, we have the most extraordinary teaching, Ve'ikatz Yaakov Mishnato, Ve'yoman, Achen yesh Adonai b'mokom hazev, anuchi lo yadatim. And Yaakov awoke from his sleep, and he said, Indeed, there is Yudhei Vavhei, there is divinity, there is being in this place. And I didn't know. So in case you are wondering what awakening means or what enlightenment means, that right there is a teaching about what it means to awaken. It means in a place where I was previously unaware, I was unaware of what is right here, I then became aware, I woke up to it. And I think it's not incidental that we, that we use the word wake up because it has an energy of wakefulness. It has an energy, there's a life to it. In the same way that we wouldn't compare the uh, quality of life that's in being asleep versus the quality of life that's being in awake. So when we really come into contact, into wakeful being with what is here on subtler and subtler levels and more and more alive levels, then that's the difference between a life of wakefulness and being really alive and a life of kind of subsisting, which is officially called life, but not really alive in its fullness. And I really think that's one of the core teachings of Torah. At least for me, it's one of the core teachings. There's so much emphasis on it, every, everywhere you look, everywhere I look. For, for instance, one of the names that we have for the divine is Hamakon, this place, the place. And any name that we use for God, for the divine, is an indication, is Reb Zalman, Allah Shalom, called it, a, a root metaphor. A root metaphor is a name that comes out of some experience to try and uh, remind us of that experience or indicate something of that experience to others or to direct us into that, uh, that experience. So when we say that God is Hamakom, or that the Mikdash, that the abode, the temple of the divine is in Hamakom, then that is directing us towards the divinity which is in this place. But there's nowhere else to find God other than here. And there's nowhere else to find us, to find ourselves, to find life other than here. Hmm. After the, the Chorban and the development of evolution of Torah and 
made especially explicit in Chassidut, uh, the human being is really considered a Mikdash. So the, the Mikdash is the place of the divine. So where is God? Here. The question then, the question as Heschel said, Abraham Joshua Heschel is, uh, the problem of religious thinking is not so much, or not only whether God is alive or dead, but whether we are alive or dead to his realness. So that shifts the orientation from being speculative or philosophical to being a question of how sensitive am I? How alive am I? How in touch am I with what's really real? With the whatness, the whatness, the suchness, the thisness. The more that we come to know that, and when I say no, I use no in the biblical sense, which, you know, the, the chat of knowing in the biblical sense is sexual. And the beauty of that is that it's a full-on embodied intimacy. That's the kind of knowing that I'm seeking, that way of knowing life, not knowing about, not knowing things. That's interesting and sometimes helpful and useful and important. But in terms of my experience of life, I want the full-on. I want to know with my whole being. And I want to be in relationship, and I want to be in service with my whole being. It's like the uh, the hokey pokey, right? You put one, you put your left arm in, you put your left arm out, you know, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and then you put your whole self in and shake it all about. <laughs> When we do that, right, we say that in, in our liturgy in Aleinu, Vashevota Elevavcha, Kirnai Ulaim Bashamayim, Vaaretz, Vaaretz Mitachet, there's nothing else. Vashevota Elevavcha, you teach your heart to know that. It's fine to endure that as a proposition maybe even helpful, but it's a whole different thing to know it as a proposition, right? To read a, a, a recipe for a chocolate cake and to actually taste the chocolate cake. Fair trade chocolate cake. So, Vashevote Levavcha is to really deeply implant that as a knowing. And in, in that place, then, we can know the aliveness, we can become vessels for the soul, for the divine, whatever you want to call it, to be through us. We can be with open-heartedness, with wisdom, with caring, with inspiration, with inner peace. And I would submit that especially in the charged and trying days which we're in the midst of at the moment, there's nothing that's more important than that. In order to maintain our own sanity and in order to spread sanity into the world, to do the work which will enable us to be from that place, to be in that place. And that seems 
simpler than it is easy. Right? That sounds good for me anyway. It sounds good so far. But it can be so hard to really accept what is here. And I want to be very precise that when I say accept what is here, I don't mean being indifferent towards what's happening out there in the world. I don't mean being passive. I don't mean that at all. What I mean is what's here right now in my own experience. Can I accept that? Can I relax with that so that I can actually have the clarity and the open-heartedness as the place in which I'm standing and rooted to act from that place in the world, to bring those qualities into the world? So why is it difficult for us? Well, for one, we have a, a deep evolutionary need for acceptance. And we have a deep, deep evolutionary aversion to what's unpleasant. So it sounds all good and you know inspiring, and then you're, you're sitting, and then you feel some discomfort in your knee, and then it's like, out goes acceptance, and you know, let me just shift a little bit and be comfortable, not to speak of more intense emotions or difficult thoughts. And we try and cling to the present, as to the pleasant, as if that will offer us some kind of safety, if we can just get enough pleasant. We run away from our experience if we don't like it, caught in the seesaw between memory, planning, fantasy, anxiety, hate, rumination, self-critique, numbness, confusion, disconnection. And those are such essential human experiences. We've inherited that from hundreds of thousands of years of human evolution. So it, it, it can be very helpful not to take it personally. Like, okay, that's here. And to see its arrival, the choice in how we respond to those experiences as actually the opportunity of evolution to continue happening. And we see it in the Parsha, right? Bereshit, especially in... Ganeden in the beginning of Genesis is is all about the essential human condition. So we have on the one hand, for me, what is really the ideal and they were both naked, we could say exposed, vulnerable, revealed, just as they were, the man and his wife. And they were unashamed, unabashed. They were just as they were. It's so simple, but so extraordinary. How often do we have that experience within ourselves to just totally accept whatever comes? Oh. And to be together with that. And how often with another person? Hopefully we've had some tastes of what that's like. We know maybe we have inklings of what helps us. Maybe think right now, what, help, what does help us be that way with other people? What from your experience? You could say it out loud. When they return the same approach. So there's a sense of mutual, mutual acceptance. Alcohol. <laughs> yeah, great answer. Yeah. And why? What goes away when alcohol comes in? Ambitions. Right. Right. 
travel. Mm. And what is it about traveling that enables that for you? No one really knows what to do or what's comfortable. Just travel. Mm. Mm, so there's a sense of openness and yeah, and planning doesn't really you planning just futile when you know that's something mm, mm, mm. So once you let go planning, there's kind of more openness and a sense of adventure or curiosity or just letting things unfold. And what happens when you live that way in your experience? I feel better. Yeah. And what kind of better? More aware, more alert, more awareness. Yeah. Right. And for me in that experience in traveling, there's, there's a kind of spontaneity and, and exhilaration and aliveness and discovery and, you know, who knows? And, oh, my plan didn't work out. Thank God. Yay. Who, what's here now? Vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Vulnerability. Sometimes that thing that doesn't go right always leads to the next best thing right afterwards. Right. Right. So there's a togetherness in that place where control isn't active and softness and suppleness. So if we take all of those qualities or some of them, the softness, suppleness, openness, curiosity, vulnerability, adventure, and bring those to our own experience, then we can actually begin to uh, make that experience, which sometimes is only accessible for us through external um, support uh, and make that more and more and more accessible whenever we would like to be in that place. Let's look what happens thereafter in Bereshit. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes. There's something else out there which she thought, oh, that, that might be it. Maybe I'll, I'll summarize in case you don't know what happens. <laughs> yeah, right? Well, maybe it'll turn out different this year. <laughs> it might. I actually, on my first meditation retreat, which was one of the biggest turning points in my life, um, or six years ago or so, uh, one of the re- realizations I had was that the story of Ganeda is actually a story of consciousness, and we can, and it's constantly happening. It's not something that happened once upon a time, Zil, that's it. It's constantly happening and constantly falling apart because of our habits of consciousness. And by the same token, it's also possible to restore that or to maintain it. Instead of falling into that separateness, falling into that grasping, falling into the hiding, to stay open, maybe even for, for one more second, and then maybe for one and a half seconds, or just one more second, one more time. And, when, and it seems like nothing, and it seems at the beginning of practice like, 
I am so far away, it's, it's never going to happen. And then we keep practicing. And then we look back a year later, two years later, five years later, and, and we see, oh, oh my, my, my life is actually in quite a different place. More Ganeden, or at least a little bit more open heart. And they opened their eyes and knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves girdles, clothing. So that's the beginning of self-consciousness. It's the beginning of uh, seeing or feeling uh, part of ourselves to be problematic and need to be covered up, hidden. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden toward the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. So if we're trying to be, to live with a sense of presence, this is the opposite. This is running away from presence. That's what we do all the time. So much so that we don't even know it because it's just habit. Experience comes up, we're elsewhere, we're in thought, we're in whatever it might be. And the Lord God called unto man and said to him, Where are you? That's a pretty simple question, right? Where are you? What's the answer to that question? I'm here. I'm here. Yeah. Good. Good work. Let's go, Let's go home. <laughs> and in fact, it's wonderful. You know, so often there's a, there's a roll call, right? Okay, and we say present. And if only we took that seriously. Present. Yes, here I am. And he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. I was afraid because I was naked. I mean, I was afraid to be me. I was afraid that you wouldn't accept me. I was afraid because I, I did something and now I'm running away from what I did. Meaning he didn't say, here I am. And here I am, it's very important to say, isn't necessarily a statement. It could just be a letting your experience be, allowing it to be as it is. This is what is right now. Hineni, as such. What you see is what you get, rather than let me put on some show. Let me pretend that I know. Let me pretend that I'm not anxious right now. Or whatever it might be. And God said, he said, who told you that you're naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat from? That, by the way, is the, the rabbis learn, and maybe we'll explore this more around Purim. That is the origin of Haman, of the archetype of Haman. Hamin ha'etz And why is that? 
that's the beginning of self-consciousness. It's the beginning of there being uh, something wrong. It's the beginning of evil. And what is evil? Evil is ra. And what is ra? Reish ayin. Ra is separateness, like tru'a. That's ra. It's not a moralistic thing. It's what comes from that feeling of separateness and self-consciousness. And then what, what does that lead to? And the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. That's called blame. And there's all too much blame going around. It doesn't mean that there's not responsibility. On the contrary, being able to be present allows us to acknowledge our own responsibility. Rav Cook writes about this, I am in exile. The chet of the first human being, which estranged him from his true self, was that he turned to the advice of the snake, losing himself. He did not know how to clearly answer the question, Ayeka, where are you? Because he did not know himself. He lost touch with his true Ines, his truest self. We must seek our inner selves. When we seek, we will find. So the answer, as we've said, to Ayeka is Hineni. That's the, that's the seeking, that's the coming into touch, coming into knowing of ourselves. That's what we find with Moshe, with Avram, with Yaakov. Moshe, at the burning bush, he's called Moshe Moshe, he says Hineni. And uh, he's told, Take your shoes off your feet, because the place on which you stand is holy ground. Meaning, it's not over here where you think it's coming from, it's right where you are. That's where it is. Just get into contact with that. Take your shoes off, right? We say, take your shoes off and feel. Usually we say, take your shoes off and feel at home. But what if we just say, take your shoes off and feel? Comma, pause, pause, pause. Once we do that, then we feel at home. When we really come into feeling life, letting it be, allowing it to be as it is, then we can come to be at home in life. As it's constantly changing, that's what comes, right? It's changing, it's changing. And we're constantly, we're in the dance with life. That's also part of Bereshit. Bereshit is the letters Brit Ish, a covenant of fire. Fire is dynamic. It's constantly dancing and changing. That's the opposite, by the way, of dati, which is like, it's kind of, it's a, it's a word which implies rigidity, that word which is used today to mean religious. Very different to be in, in the brit ish, to be in a dynamic covenant with creation. And when we come to that, that's the tikkun, the transformation the ability to stand in our naked experience. And that's our avoda. I'll tell you what I meant to do at the beginning of our time today, which I forgot. <laughs> what I wanted to do is to give everyone a little piece of paper. And I invite you uh, to do this tomorrow or tonight. And to just go like this with your fingers, to just kind of mush it up and squish it and do that. And just do it even for 10 minutes. And what you'll notice is that the paper goes from being relatively hard to being quite soft, much more like a tissue. So as I said to some of you earlier, that's 
that's what a voda is. That's what spiritual work is. Rabbi Zalman taught that uh, in Chassidut, they say they talk about avot me'ubadim from the same word as a voda, tanned hides. You say in English, leather which has been worked, which goes from being coarse to having that quality of suppleness, of softness, of malleability. So what we're doing is is allowing that to happen to ourselves. Our avoda has that quality uh, on us. I once uh, got to shake hands with the Dalai Lama. I know. <laughs> Shlita. So what I noticed is that Dalai Lama had really soft hands. <laughs> and I think it's not a coincidence. It's like he has been doing some serious, serious avoda. And he has really soft hands. Not to mention an incredible lightness, which laughter, which go together. So coming into that place, that in place of honesty, of unabashedness, of when life is hard, seeing if we can let it soften us. Seeing if we can let it open us. And when life is sweet, seeing if we can let go into it rather than holding on to it. And the gift which comes with that is this quality of being at home in the world, of a fullness and realness of life. And we know, we know from our own experience, and that's probably why many of us are here, that it's possible to live otherwise. So to get along, to do fine. There's a great TED Talk on vulnerability by a teacher of nonviolent communication named Joram Mosensen, of whom I'm a big fan. He says, fine is an acronym. It stands for fucking incapable of naming emotions. <laughs> so instead of being fine, we can be alive. We can be sad, scared, anxious, eager, joyful, delighted. Whatever it might be, we will deepen into a richness of our experience. And then we'll get to live. And the good book says, Choose life. So the question then is, how do we do that? What is this avoda? And now I want to switch and talk more about the tachlis, and particularly about the kind of path or practice which I'll share, and which I intend to teach, or to at least hold as a basis for our practice and exploration together. And this particular approach to practice is taken by uh, an American, also Jewish, uh, teacher who is a master of meditation and has come up with a particular framework or way of talking about, uh, about mindfulness, which he calls basic mindfulness. His name is Shinzen Yang. Um, and in Shinzen's understanding, we could talk about avoda as particular ways of paying attention to life, to experience. And if we're going to talk about paying attention to experience, so we need to talk about two things. We need to talk about what do we mean by experience on the one hand, and what do we mean by paying attention on the other hand. And so that's why I have uh, this grid on the board. And I'll introduce it for you. So this grid, the full grid of experience, which needs a few more lines to be 
really full. I have to say I'm relatively impressed with my handwriting. So this is a full grid of experience. We can say just pay attention, pay attention to whatever there is, but it's very helpful uh, to bring some more sharpness, so some more clarity to what am I paying attention to. So if I say right now, pay attention, so that might lead you somewhere, and if I say right now, what is the feeling in your hands? You have a sense of the difference in the clarity of what you're actually doing in that practice. So I'm going to give a, a kind of general uh, overview of what are the options of what there is to pay attention to, meaning what is there in this human experience. I'm not going to go too much into it. It's all available online, and I will probably send out uh, his manual where you can read and review, which I recommend, and is very helpful to have that framework for practice. His name is Shin Zenyang. Uh, so we could basically say uh, all or almost all of our experience is made up of seeing, hearing, and feeling. And we can divide seeing, hearing, and feeling into different realms. So for one, and this is the one that we're going to spend most of our time here working on, uh, there's the internal subjective sense of self, the inner world. So we have mental images, right? We can, we can talk about thoughts as being made up of mental images, images that come up. If you think right now about your mom, okay, so probably some image comes up. Uh, maybe there's some mental talk. You can hear what her voice sounds like, or you hear your own voice saying something about her. And then there's emotional body sensation. That's the feel, like the, the feel in the body which is emotional. And then we can talk about the external objective experience. So we have seeing, hearing, and feeling in that realm as well. So see, so that's seeing the way we think of it most of the time. Right now your eyes are open and you're having visual stimuli. So that would be seeing, what we would call see out, as opposed to see in. Then you have uh, sound from the external world, so we would call that hear out, as opposed to the mental talk, which we would call hear in. And then you have physical body sensation. If you feel right now the contact uh, with the floor, with the chair, most likely there's not like a lot of, most of us don't carry a lot of emotional experience on our backside. It is just a simple physical sensation. And then we have the absence of sensation, which we experience as rest or as quiet. So in the visual field, it could be that your gaze is softer. If your eyes are closed, there's just that kind of grayscale. There's not particular stimulus there. Uh, in the hearing realm, what we would call hear rest is either noticing around you, you're sitting in a quiet place and there's no noise, so you pay attention to that quiet, we would call that hear rest. And another form of hear rest is noticing when there's no mental talk going on in your head, which might actually be more than you think once you start to pay attention. The kind of space between the mental talk, parts of thought. Uh, and then on the physical level of feel rest, there's physical relaxation or the absence of emotional sensation and just feeling that kind of that easiness that comes uh, in the body. So that's basically what life is made up of. Of course, we can go into much greater resolution, uh, and, and we may. Um, 
And I want to spend most of our time in, uh, in this realm, in the internal subjective realm. And it's not because it's any better um, than, than other realms. It's because most of us tend to get stuck or tend to get hijacked or tend to get overwhelmed because of stuff which is happening in the inner subjective world. Certainly that's been the case for me. Uh, and much of my practice has been in this realm. So it's learning to work with thoughts and emotions. And we will use other of these elements. You know, if you've done a, a, a practice which is focused on a sensation of breathing, then which box would that go in? Yeah, exactly. So, so breathing is often a physical body sensation. Sometimes there may be some emotional sensation that we feel in that area. So it's not a totally separate practice from breathing. This just brings a, a more uh, systematic approach to our experience. Uh, it can be very grounding also to uh, focus on one of the physical experiences or to focus on rest and to go back and forth. Um, and I know there, there's a lot of information here, so it's just beginning to lay the groundwork for how we're going to go into experience. And one of the reasons that it's important to me to do that is because it's very easy to sit here and speak beautiful words at Torah. Uh, and that's kind of like, uh, you know, an architect might draw you up a beautiful plan for your house. But if you want to actually live in the house, then you have to build it brick by brick by brick, which is uh, maybe less sexy and, and less exciting, inspiring, but that's how things actually come into the world. So what we're looking at here is kind of the, the plans of how we go about actually doing doing that building. Um, okay, so that, that begins to uh, answer the question of what are we paying attention to. But mindfulness is actually less uh, or as much about the what as it is the how. What are the qualities of attention that we're using? And Shenzhen talks about three skills of attention, or we could say they're muscles, which when we uh, develop them and, and exercise them allow us to um, to live mindfully and to live with all of those qualities that we've been exploring. Those particular uh, skills are concentration. That's this one. And concentration is the ability to direct your attention to whatever you've determined is relevant at a given time. So if you're reading and you want to focus on the text, that's your, uh, that's your object of concentration. If you're focusing on the breath, that's where you've deemed as relevant. And you've all had that, right? There's some time when you're just kind of dropped into the zone, you're in flow, nothing else is bothering you, things slow down, you're here, you're there. So developing concentration makes that, uh, makes that state more and more accessible. You can go like, go-go gadget concentration, and then you're just in the zone. Um, the next quality is sensory clarity. Right? And we've had that experience as well, I imagine, where you have a, a sense of vividness or richness in your experience. Maybe you go outside one day and the colors really strike you. You can feel very clearly what's happening in your body, which part is feeling, which part is sound, which part is sight. So we're, I, I think in that part of our experience, it's like increasing our, uh, especially with those two, it's like increasing our experience to high definition. We go from this kind of grainy black and white 
into a richness of love. And then, uh, and then we have equanimity. And equanimity is this, uh, is this big word, but we've also had that experience of equanimity, of, of being at ease, of being relaxed, or maybe we're struggling with some discomfort, physical or emotional or mental, and, and then you can kind of let go, and all of a sudden, even though the sensation might not have gone away, its problematic nature went away. Or maybe you were having a really great day, and something happened which, really, which would usually have triggered you, and you're more able to be relaxed and to take it in and to respond effectively. Another word for, relax for equanimity would be relaxation or love. The ability to really let go and be with experience as it is, rather than what we usually do, which is for pleasant experience, pulling on it, trying to get it to stay here, to be more, to come here, and for unpleasant experience, pushing on it, trying to, to get it away. So equanimity is that. Thank you. Or welcome. Yes. Equanimity, I would say, is shivyon nefesh, or ishtavut. So we say, shiviti Hashem le tamid, which in English we would translate as, I place the divine opposite me always. Uh, but I think the Balshantov teaches that it's shiviti, kama, Meaning, first I come to this place of relaxation, of ease, and then I awaken to this that it's actually the divine which is always here, which is which is opposite me. It's a shivion, uh, the balance. Is it also like a holding of what is? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, another metaphor which is helpful is if you think of an electrical circuit. So if an electric circuit is really conductive, then the electricity flows through it really easily. And if it's really not conductive, then there's a lot of resistance along the way. So equanimity is just like that. The more equanimity we have, the more experience flows through us. The more sense of ease there is and flow. And that's a training, right? Because we have these deep, again, evolutionary human tendencies that we've inherited to push and pull, to try and get things to be a certain way. And what we realize here is that that sucks, that there's a lot of suffering involved in that, that I'm causing myself beyond whatever is happening to me. All of my resistance to it, that's creating my suffering. There may be some unpleasant experience there. There may be a lot of unpleasant experience there. But I'm adding into it thisness. And in Tehillim, uh, it teaches, Relax, and you'll know that I am. So we do that, and we do it thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of times. That's how the brain learns a different way of being. And in fact, people who meditate just for, I think, 15 minutes a day over, over the course of two months, and then have their brain scan, there's actually um, a decrease in the gray matter associated with, uh, with suffering, and an increase in the gray matter associated with well-being and compassion. So that's that's just a couple months of a, of a little bit of consistent daily practice. There's actually physical changes uh, in the brain. Okay. What about that last triangle? Yes, thank you. The last triangle. Okay, so basically what we're saying is the practice is noticing 
noting and allowing. So we notice some aspect of our experience, and then we bring to it the qualities of mindfulness, the qualities of concentration. We focus on it. We discern what is it. Is it hearing, seeing, feeling, in, out? And, uh, and then we relax into it. We allow it to be. Uh, and what's very helpful in doing that is labeling. Um, so this is the international symbol for the laser, laser-like focus. And each triangle, each side of this triangle, represents an aspect of a way of labeling which is quite helpful. So one side is wording, another side is pace, and another side is tone. So in terms of wording, uh, we can use very simple but very helpful labels. So uh, if you look, for instance, now at the doorway in this room, look at the doorway in this room, Okay, so how many of you looked the first time and how many of you looked the second time? Always looking so not many more of you the second time. So what often happens is we try and notice and it doesn't work very well because there's so much momentum of the mind, so much conditioning to pay attention to all kinds of other things in all kinds of other ways. But when we point, that brings a much stronger uh, direction to the mind. So that's the difference between labeling and noting. And we can label in different ways. We can label out loud. We can label in our minds. It can be a softer, loud label. So if I'm sitting right now and I want to pay attention to my uh, to something in this column, let's say I want to work with my thoughts. And again, I'm not trying to get rid of my thoughts, but rather to bring the qualities of mindfulness to my thoughts. So then I would say, see in. Your rest. Your rest. Your rest. Your in. Um, okay, so what do I mean by that? What's happening there? So here in is mental talk. That's mental talk or sounds that are happening in my mind. I'm just noticing it. Not identifying with it. A very important core understanding. We are not our thoughts. And here we practice and we train ourselves in the ability to be free with our thoughts rather than stuck and lost in them. So just notice if that comes up. We'll call that here in. And then if a thought, a mental talk disappears, we'll say gone. And then we'll notice what will happen is either there'll be more mental talk and then we'll say here in again. Or they'll be quiet, and then we'll say, here, rest. So what we do is we note, and then we spend a second or two with the experience, just being with it, allowing it to be curious about what is it. And then we note again. And we do that every couple seconds, so we actually keep reminding our attention to stay here and to stay in this way, rather than, and hopefully we do that before we get lost. If you do it out loud, it's a really strong support. Because then you'll notice yourself, you'll, you'll note very quickly when you're lost and spend much less time often thought and much more time actually doing the experience. It seems like that is mental talk, though. Great question. You mean the labeling is mental talk? Right. Like, like somewhere like then you get identified with the part of you that's labeling, and it's another just another mental talk. Yeah, great point. So, <coughs> so labeling we don't consider mental talk. 
of course you can notice and you can explore what's it like, uh, but partly because it's intentional, I think, it has a different quality uh, than the mental talk, which is just the momentum of conditioning which is arising. And your other point, I think, is really important that because we are labeling, there is actually a part of us which is not lost in our experience. And that's especially important as we take the practice from sitting on the chair or sitting on the cushion into life. So if, you're, if you notice that uh, life is overwhelming you, you're getting hijacked by some uh, thought process, you're going, you know, for me, when I was depressed, it was years of ruminating, going around in the same circles in my mind. So if I were to bring to that, notice that thinking, and say, oh, you're in. You're in. Then there would be at least some part of me in my awareness which is not inside that, which is not continuing to fuel that momentum, to feed that momentum. And if I'm not feeding it, then eventually it will run out or at least lose its steam and I gain more and more freedom about how, and, and open to this whole self, this whole vastness, which is not that little contracted me which feels stuck in that. And do you, do you label in terms of what the thought is about or just a generic thought, you yeah. know, like herein? Great. So, great question. So, at least for now, we're just labeling herein. Any mental talk will label us herein. Seems like if you do that, then you don't have the talk anymore. It said it replaces. Yeah, Whatever it, thoughts you were right. hearing. It might. And it, it's okay if so it, it does. It becomes like a new focus. Yeah, well, if, it, if you notice that you label here in, and then the thought goes away, so then, you're le- then you'll note gone, and it disappears. That's what we use gone for. And then you might be left with here rest, and then you can just enjoy the quiet peacefulness of being at, of being at rest. And it's, it's fine if that's what happens. I'm sure you'll notice at some point, or at least some people will, that the thought doesn't go away. But what comes is actually a way of being with the thought, which is different than usual, rather than being lost in thought, as we say, or being present with thought. So, yes? As soon as you have a new thought, that means, like, because I have thought, 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 yeah, thought, like, it's right. almost like, like, in between there is a little gone. Yeah. So then you just go here and here and here and here and <laughs> Well, uh, I mean, that you have that awareness already displays a degree of, uh, of clarity, which is great. Um, so you can notice. So what I would say is generally you want to you want to label every one to three seconds. So that has to do with the pace. The pace, the wording, uh, I would say the pace and the tone are really helping us to come to a place of equanimity, right? Like if I say, I love you. That tone really, <laughs> right? Or hate you, sweetheart. <laughs> like, you know, there's much more. We're much more affected by tone and pace than we are by content. So, for instance, for people who have anxiety, you might notice that when you have anxiety, the pace of your mental talk is going much quicker. And just by slowing it down, you can really change your inner experience. And so we want to note at a pace, as a, I'm so glad you asked the question, we want to note at a pace uh, which brings that quality of presence and stability and equanimity. We can also, by the way, practice talking at that pace. It's a wonderful practice, a wonderful way of being. So I would suggest noting in a way which is not too loose and not too 
racing. <coughs> You'll find what works for you probably once every one to three seconds. But I want to say about 5% of our attention should be on the noting, the labeling, and 95% on the experience itself. My younger brother gave a, a beautiful metaphor. He said that the labeling is like the sign on the highway which tells you, here's your exit, or this is where you're going. So you lay, oh, oh, there's herein. And now I can be with herein. Or here's feeling. Oh, like lots of feeling, lots of emotion. And okay, feel in. Feel in. Um, so what I want to suggest, and I know... Yes. What distinguishes labeling from judging? Um, good question. So, uh, labeling is really a kind of objective noting of what is present. It's a kind of uh, a classification rendered in a particular way which uh, um, develops the qualities of mindfulness. Whereas judging... Uh, usually comes from a sense of aversion. Like, here's an experience, I don't want it. So judging, you can, lab you can label it. You can label it as judging. Judging, you can label it as herein. If it's coming, you might notice, and we'll do this more as we go along. This is where this grid becomes very useful. Oh, look, there's fuel in, and that brings a hearing. And it's like, clenched, and then off to the races in the mind or vice versa, and there's a loop there. And there's this kind of divide-and-conquer strategy that this makes very helpful, untangling the threads of experience. So what is happening in my body? What's happening in my mind? And when we can take those one by one, uh, we make it much easier to bring the qualities of open-heartedness, of clarity, of wisdom, to our experience, rather than making everything at once. And judging is actually a topic that Experience. Oh boy. <laughs> Pardon? Hmm. Okay. So, um, so I want to do some practice. Uh, it's eight o'clock. Or 801, so for those who need to go, um, you're welcome. Um.